Hello, my name is Megan Morgan. I am sitting in my living room next to a copy of Betty Crocker's new picture cookbook. And um, I was sitting here thumbing through this book that I have had on my shelf for probably a year now. I found it at a little bookstore here in Baltimore uh, called The Book Thing, where people bring in books they don't want anymore, and other people can come and pick up those books for free. Um, it's very cool. And on one particular occasion, I found this book uh, in the cooking section called Betty Crocker's New Picture Cookbook, and it is published in 1961. This is a classic cookbook. Um, it is beautiful. It looks exactly like you would expect a 1961 uh, cookbook to look. Um, it has this really neat sort of grid uh, square pattern on the front with these like technicolor photos of things like a cherry pie and a strawberry cake and um, a turkey with those little white, you know, paper things on the ends of the legs just glistening, perfectly cooked. And over top are all these little drawings of, you know, utensils and um, it has this very graphic, very cool look. And I just, I could not resist picking this up. Part of the reason was, um, as I've gotten older, I've come to really love cooking. Uh, I didn't uh, for a very long time. Um, I, I, but now I love to cook. And I also um, have always been really interested in, in feminism and sort of, you know, what are gender roles? What are the things that are typically considered masculine? What are the things that are typically considered feminine? How do these things intersect with each other? What happens when you aren't typically feminine or masculine? And I think that cooking is just really deeply tied into you know, a lot of those ideas of, of what is male and what is female and, and, you know, what are the things that like buck that system and what have those things been over time? And I've asked these questions all my life, uh, believe it or not, really from the time I was a little kid, I was in the toy aisle, um, at Walmart or, you know, um, wherever we happen to be to, buying toys back in 1990 and I would get so angry because the Lego sets that I wanted were always in the boy aisle and I used to go up to my mother and she can absolutely attest to this when I was a small small child and I would say to her mom why is all this stuff that I love in an aisle marked for boys like why would things even be separated out this way? I asked that question when I was really small. And so as I got older, I resisted cooking at all for a very long time um, because it seemed like something that was so typically feminine 
that I very specifically steered away from having an interest in it. Um, fortunately for me, I am crafty. I like to make things. Um, I've I liked to knit. I like to write books. Um, I enjoy photography. I just, I, I love creating things for other people to enjoy. And I also, uh, I enjoy experiments. I like to follow directions and put things together. As previously mentioned, I love Lego sets um, when I was a little kid. I, I loved following the step-by-step -step directions and taking all of these various components and putting them together into something cohesive um, by the by the end of the instruction book. Um, and let me tell you, like cooking very deeply satisfies all of those you know desires that i have to make something and to give it to the people that i love and also to you know conduct these sort of like interesting experiments okay well what happens if we add lemon to this instead of lime what happens you know if you swap out cardamom for cinnamon cardamom is one of my favorite spices and i think it's one of those that's so contentious because some people absolutely love it and some people could care less uh, about cardamom and yeah, that, that idea, those ideas of following a recipe, of putting together these ingredients that are seemingly nothing and making them into something and then being able to have this tangible object that you can then give to other people that is not just not just something you're giving them, but something that can sustain them, something that is part of their life. Like we all have to consume nutrients in order to survive. So you're giving someone this sort of enormous gift of this is something that you need to live. And I made this for you. And I made it not only, you know, because it will sustain you, but also because I care about you and also because I want this experience of consuming this thing to be pleasant for you. You know, I want you to be able to enjoy it. Um, so yeah, that, that sort of alchemy of all of those things eventually um, in my early 20s turned me into an absolutely avid cook. Um, and this took a really long time for me to sort of wrap my head around because let me tell you, I have, I have always resisted those sort of typically feminine things. And so when I saw this Betty Crocker's new picture cookbook on the shelf and it's very obvious from looking at it immediately what era it's from. And we are talking about a time when, you know, who, what kind of person a female could be was like so specific. 
Like you were a mother. You cared for the house. You made your man a drink before he got home. Your makeup, your hair, your dress, they were all perfect. And you were putting down these beautiful meals in front of your family. Um, just that is the antithesis of who I am as a cook. Um, I'm a single mom these days. I am also a working mom these days. And yeah, that idea of feminism in the world that I live in, in the kind of sort of cooking space that I inhabit is completely and totally just foreign to me. And this book represents absolutely all of that. So I decided as I, as I thumbed through this that I absolutely need to record my thoughts on it. Um, and hopefully you are as interested in sort of what I've seen in these pages as I am. Um, it is most definitely, and boy, I sure hope that you can hear, number one, this book smells absolutely incredible. I'm a writer. I'm a, I'm a reader. I've been pulling out library books that were like ancient since I was a little, little kid. And I, I'm one of those people who I love the smell of books. This book smells absolutely <laughs> incredible. It is just, if this is what, if they, you know how they make those candles that are supposed to smell like books? All I'm saying is, is that those candles had better smell just like this. Because there's this combination of the aged paper, the glue that's in the binding, just everything about it. You pick it up, you smell it, you're like, this, this is a pretty old book. Um, and it just, I had a grandmother, um, her name was Joanne Morgan. She was a kindergarten teacher, and she was absolute perfection. Um, my grandfather always called her his Pollyanna. You have probably never seen the movie Pollyanna, but the character of Pollyanna in the movie um, is this young girl who just sees everything in a completely positive light. So this cookbook is the ultimate like Pollyanna Grandma Morgan cookbook. It has this very neat, tidy font. It has all of these very fine pin line sketches within it. Um, and sometimes the pin lines are black and sometimes they're red. And every now and then it has these, you know, photos of, you know, a woman's perfectly manicured hand measuring out liquids and cheese. And it's just the combination of these illustrations. It's all just so cheerful and bright and geometric at the same time. It's so simple. It, looking at this cookbook, you will think, all right, well, number one, the words are dense. This is, this might be tough. It might be tough to figure out. But if you do, 
you're going to be happy for like the rest of your life. You're going to have it all figured out. And and the illustrations, 100%, they're these smiling, happy people drawn in just like the bare minimum of lines, like just what you need. It has almost like a geometric quality to it. And it's just so clean lined. And, and yes, it is exactly what you would expect a... 1961 cookbook to be and um yeah I'm just I'm going to start by reading the introduction on page two and keep in mind this is Betty Crocker um I this is the only Betty Crocker cookbook that I have although I think that my mother had one when I was a little kid it was much more updated than this um what I have what I started off with as my first cookbook is the uh, Better Homes and Gardens new cookbook. Um, I have that one specifically because my cross-country coach in high school uh, was probably the person who technically sparked my interest in cooking. She had this huge dinner at the end of the cross-country season every year where all of us teammates cooked a rather elaborate dinner for our parents. And I distinctly remember my cross-country coach gave me the task of cooking rolls, of, of, of putting together like rolls from scratch. Keep in mind that at this point in my life, I could not boil a spaghetti noodle. I was absolutely hopeless in the kitchen. Like my sister could at least throw a hot dog in the microwave um, and, you know, thereby sustain herself. I was at this point in my life, the sort of person who would throw a plate of Chinese food in the oven or in in the microwave for five minutes and turn it into rubber and wonder what the hell had gone wrong. Um, You don't put Chinese food in the microwave for five minutes. Um, And my cross country coach gave me the job of making rolls. I followed the directions in this Better Homes and Gardens cookbook that she had um, with a great deal of assistance from her. And I distinctly remember we got got to the point where we were taking the dough and pinching it into individual rolls. And there was just this distinct sensation. And if you've ever pinched a hunk of dough off of really properly kneaded yeast dough. You can wrap your hand around this sort of glob of of what looks like just, you know, nonsense. You can wrap your hand around it and you pinch off an orb and, and you really literally, like you can pinch it in your fingers and this orb will come away with this sort of like scrunchy feeling and it co coheres it holds together and it is is really simple and really satisfying and that experience in and of itself was just so magical to me that texture and the way that piece just like sort of popped off of the you know larger mass of this dough and then the sort of feeling of it like there's a tension in the skin of you know yeast dough there's this sort of tightness in it there's this you can feel 
you can really feel those sort of bonds of the gluten, I guess, if, if you're getting really scientific about it. Um, you can feel that when you're holding it, that, that sort of way that everything is coming together. And I think I had this sort of sense of, you know, all that underlying science that was happening. Um, it felt like magic to me. And so after that, um, a couple of years later, the first cookbook that I got was the Better Homes and Gardens new cookbook, which was the same cookbook that my cross-country coach used. Um, I was terrible for a very long time. I, I made a lot of really bad, bad recipes. I, I failed utterly um, probably half the time. And I don't know why I didn't give up other than I was really chasing those magical moments when something worked. When um, one of my favorite things to make early on was chicken cacciatore. Um, and it is still one of my favorite things to make. Um, it's, it's this sort of Italian dish with chicken and lots of tomatoes. And if you're really lucky, it, it has some like cured meat in it. I love prosciutto, uh, mushrooms. These are all my favorite things. And, uh, it's this very rich and lovely meal, uh, it's delicious over pasta. And I remember I made that and that was the moment. I'd never had anything like that in my life. And I cooked it and I ate it. And this was something I could not have had in a restaurant. It's peasant food. You know, chicken cacciatore is not something that you very often find in an Italian restaurant. Not Not a really nice one. And here I was. There's this thing I've never heard of. I made it. I put it on a plate and I ate it and it was it was delicious. And I think that after that I was just constantly chasing those moments of all right, I found this recipe, I made this thing, some crazy magic happened, and now I'm tasting something I've never tasted before and it's wonderful. And so, yeah, I, I started with the Better Homes and Gardens cookbook. I then had a couple of Rachel Ray cookbooks um, because they were, in spite of the very long ingredient lists, they were pretty pretty easy for jumping off. And she was very popular at the time I started cooking. Um, and then I sort of expanded out into a lot of other uh, cookbooks from Food Network people, and I watched a lot of cooking shows. Um, I fell in love with um, shows by Alton Brown. Um, I loved all the science and uh, the technical skills and sort of the nitpickiness of Alton Brown's uh, Good Eats show. And... I've just sort of gone, circled out since then. So now I have the Essential New York Times cookbook. Um, I have Half-Baked Harvest cookbook from uh, from uh, Tegan Gerard. I have, oh, one of my favorite new ones that I've added is a cookbook from Nigella, I, Nigella Lawson. I also have a lot of kid-related cookbooks. Nothing like super 
like ridiculously fancy. I cook a lot of food that is fast, that is easy, that is full of flavor, um, that is satisfying for both me and for my kids. So yeah, this Betty Crocker's cookbook is a very different addition to that collection. But these are the recipes. This is an amazing thing. These, This is the cookbook that my grandmothers would have read. These are the recipes that my grandmothers would have cooked. Um, these are the kinds of things that my parents possibly grew up eating. Um, so I'm going to read for you now the introduction. And then we'll get we'll get started on all of my thoughts on the advice and the recipes that are here in this book and both how far we've come as cooks and as people humans male female uh or um or otherwise and uh yeah, we're we're going to dive into sort of how this reflects on the world we live in and how it shows how different things once were. So, this is the introductory letter. Dear homemaker, as you know, accurate measurements are necessary for good baking results. We have done a great deal of testing in our kitchens and in homes of women throughout the country to determine the best method for measuring flour. We are happy to tell you that our new modern dip-level pour method, described on this page, gives consistently uniform measurements and beautiful bakings. Many homemakers prefer this method because of its ease and time-saving convenience. However, you may still follow the traditional sifting method if you prefer. Use either method without altering the amounts of flour. So this is the first thing in the book, is how do you measure flour? And this suppose this apparently new method of measuring it, um, as opposed to sifting it, and and you can tell just from looking at the illustrations that you know this is a, probably a more rapid method than what had been used previously. Um, so here here are the instructions: dip level pour method for measuring flour. Number one. Dip nested measuring cups into flour sack or canister and using cake flour, spoon flour to overflowing into nested cups. Number two, level off with spatula or straight edge knife. Do not tap cup or pack more flour into cup before leveling off. Number three, pour flour into mixing bowl with other ingredients. Just stir to blend. Oh, wow. Okay, so this is really quite amazing because this is legitimately how my grandmother uh my grandma morgan taught me to like to measure ingredients and they're talking about this like this is something new in this book this is something that really hasn't been done this way before and yet it's something that we sort of can cons- like i don't know i would take that particular method for granted nowadays um so yeah, they're basically saying just dip your fucking cup in, level it off, 
and then pour it into the mixing bowl instead of sifting it. Um, just make sure you don't fucking pack it in, which, you know, seems pretty obvious, I think. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I guess apparently it was not. And, and you know, that's that's sort of how we as humans are, is we innovate and then we sort of take for granted those innovations that we have. The next page is the Betty Crocker Kitchens in Golden Valley. And the illustrations and photographs in this section are absolutely amazing. There are these, there's this room next to this kitchen with sort of a little tea area. It's a humongous room, by the way. I live in a little two-bedroom apartment right now. And this individual room is as big as my apartment is. It has this humongous sofa on it that's red and has all these like very spacey geometric black patterns on it and a round coffee table and two just fantastic sort of folding chairs. Although I'm sure they don't actually fold, but they have all these struts as if they do that are upholstered in blue leather and then they have one of those crazy walls that you used to see and that you don't see in houses anymore that the only purpose of this wall is that it has a little sort of like concave part on the top where you can put plants it is a room divider the sole purpose of which is to hold your freaking house plants. I had one of these in the house that I grew up in as a kid. These like, except it was like a railing at the top of the stairs. It, it was a thing that kept you from like falling over the stairs. And literally, like that's what it is. It's, it's a half wall that you can pop plants into. And that's all you can do with it. Like that kind of luxury is just sort of unimaginable in the lives that we have now um and to have that many plants to take care of that many plants um you almost definitely have to be a homemaker i i would guess and then there are these photos of all these women so many women in these pristine white dresses with the sort of hair that you only get from you know sitting in rollers for a couple of hours twice a week at the hair salon and these white dresses and these white shoes in this white kitchen just everything is perfectly white and they are cooking the fuck out of a bunch of cakes i don't see anything that they're making here other than cakes and pies i would love to see like a roast beef but i don't think that those kinds of things are considered pretty enough um and yeah, it's just all of these sort of very fantastic and very 60s photos. And next is a section on kitchen know-how. And this is one of my favorite parts of the book so far is hints for the homemaker. If someone came up to me and handed me a little, you know, like printed out sheet of hints for the homemaker that I should take note of for like improving, bettering my life, 
um, for becoming a better homemaker, um, I would probably kick them out of my house because I have no time for that nonsense. None of us do anymore. Um, but the hit major hints for the homemaker are plan ahead. So we're still into the whole, whole meal planning thing, aren't we? Like that's the reason why like Blue Apron exists uh, is because we're still struggling to plan ahead. This book is written in 19... This book was published in 1961. They were advising women then to plan their fucking meals. We still, that's like the number one piece of advice that you get when you're trying to put together healthy meals every week. Put together a meal plan. We still haven't figured this out, everybody. We've had Oh my god, how long ago was 1961? You're forcing me to do math now, and I don't do math. So let's see. It's two thousand. It's 2020 right now. This should be really easy. I think that that is 60 years. Does that make... Yeah, it's been 60 years. We have had almost 60 years to figure out how to make a fucking weekly menu, y'all. And we haven't done it. Um... Shop for staples once a week. Fresh fruits and vegetables twice weekly. Um, and the next suggestion is that you combine jobs. You guys, this section, it's beautiful. It really is. I'm like, look, I get that this, <laughs> this whole thing is from a different time and a different culture. I don't know how women survived. I don't know how we're still around now based off of what I'm about to read you, because I think that if I had to read this and take this next section seriously, take any of this seriously, I would have just opened this book and screamed every damn day of my life. So here we go. Bake cake or cookies while washing dishes or cooking dinner. Pair vegetables while meat is browning. Plan leftovers. Cook some foods to be served more than once, such as beef roast. Use again for beef sandwiches, beef hash, and beef pie. Plan and organize daily work while working with hands, peeling potatoes, sweeping floor, etc. So but they're basically telling you, like, mentally, figure out what the fuck you're going to do with your day while you're fucking cooking. Don't think about the conversation that you're going to have with your mom about why the fuck your husband comes home such a grumpy asshole and why can't he figure out that you're stressed because you're dealing with the kids and the cooking all day it's not that easy like you can't be having mental conversations with somebody no you have to be planning and organizing your daily work like what if i want to what if i want to think about like a craft project what if i want to think about like the next book I'm going to write. Oh, man, that's like so not happening. No, I need to be planning my chores. Um, this next section is even worse. The next hint for the homemaker is refresh your spirits. Every morning before breakfast, comb hair, apply makeup, and a dash of cologne. Okay, I don't know. I don't know if you ever have really had your hair properly done at a salon. I don't, we, this is not something that we do very much anymore. My grandmother, though, used to visit the salon 
twice a week to get her hair done. And once her hair was done, it was done until the next time she went to the salon. She did not touch that. It was like shellacked to her head, basically. It was all done up in these beautiful, you know, like what are those French roll things um, or or some kind of a fancy braid or something. When it was done, it was done. You did not comb your hair. You didn't comb it. Um, so I'm assuming this was written by a man. I can only assume that because at least certainly the illustrations in this book would lead me to believe that these women are following the same theory that my grandmother did in which they are having their hair done at a salon and then you don't fucking touch it. <laughs> so every morning before breakfast, comb hair, apply makeup and a dash of cologne does wonders for your morale and your families too. Think pleasant thoughts while working and a chore will become a labor of love. That is such an interesting statement to make. Like, not only, oh my god, this is just so incredible now from the perspective that we have now. Not only, although I don't know, we do this sometimes too. Not only though, do you have to do the work, but you have to be happy while you're doing it. Because if it's not a labor of love, like for the benefit of your family, then what is it? Like if you don't do these things with happiness in your heart and mind, then like you're, <laughs> you're going to, to be doing bad things for your family. I, I just, but we still do this. You know what I mean? We have this whole like positive thinking culture now. I think this is not, this is, this seems crazy, right? You can't do everything happy all the time. Like you're not going to be cooking every single meal a hundred percent focused on, oh, I'm like giving this nourishment to my family and I love them so much and I'm doing this for them. It's not going to happen. Some nights you're going to be flipping a fucking quesadilla on the stove to throw down in front of your kids so that you can move on to helping them with homework. That's just a fact, or at least it certainly is in my life. Um, it's not going to be a labor of love every time, and do you know what? That's okay. We can we can let go of the need to make absolutely everything wonderful. All right. Okay. Okay. So next, next, have a hobby. Garden, paint pictures, look through magazines for home planning ideas, read a good book or attend club meetings, be interested, and you'll always be interesting. If you have a spare moment, sit down, close your eyes, and just relax. If you have a spare moment, that's very interesting. It, it's, this book is definitely assuming that you're not having a spare moment because after all, it is so very important that you look through magazines for home planning ideas. Um, this, this refresh your spirit section is, is very challenging for me, of course, because it's this, there's this idea that not only do you have to you know, be present. Not only do you have to be doing the cooking and the cleaning, you have to look good doing it. And then 
when you're not doing those things, you have to invest your time in being more interesting as a human being. Like, I 100% support having hobbies. I think that everyone should. But the idea that you're doing it so that other people will find you more interesting is slightly horrifying. No, you should fucking have a hobby because you want to have a hobby. You should be making macrame hippy-dippy wall hangings because you love them. You think they're pretty and you like the way they look and you can give them as Christmas gifts to your fellow millennial girlfriends who like having them on their walls too. I mean, the, the point of doing a thing is because you enjoy doing a thing. You shouldn't do it so that other people like you more. It's just obviously. I don't know why I'm arguing with a book that was written in 1961. Like, clearly this is not for me, but I feel like we're still having these conversations just a little bit. Um, and I'm kind of wondering, like, how much, oh, how much of this thinking do we integrate into, you know, our ideas of what people should be? Um, okay, our next hint for the homemaker is organized work. Have a weekly plan for scheduling such tasks as washing, ironing, baking, shopping, cleaning the refrigerator, or washing floors. One task done each day provides a sense of accomplishment and keeps work from piling up. Alternate sitting down tasks and standing up tasks. Don't be on your feet too long. That's actually a really good health tip. Um, I'm someone who has, like, I have really shitty blood vessels. They tend to explode. So the whole idea of standing up and sitting down and alternating that, that's legit, valid, good medical advice if you don't want the blood vessels in your legs to explode. Oh, this one's sweet. Let the family help you. Very young children can set the table. Older ones can help cook and wash the dishes. Include them in party plans. Okay, all right. I like that. I can dig it. Like, I'm 100% all for, like, involve the kids. Is it easy? No. I mean, when I bring my kids in to help me bake a batch of chocolate chip cookies, let's just say it's going to take about an hour longer than it usually would. There's going to be a much bigger mess to clean up. But they're going to learn some stuff. So, you know, 100%. I'm done with that. Be comfortable. Wear comfortable shoes and easy-fitting clothes while working. Stand erect. Good posture prevents fatigue. <laughs> this, this amuses me because my grandmother, Morgan, used to have me walk across the room with a book on my head. No joke. She used to have my sister and I, and probably some of my cousins too, walk across her living room. And by the way, her house blue, pale blue carpet on the floors, navy blue sofas. It was a white painted walls. It was top to bottom, white and blue. Um, the kitchen was white and blue. The dining room was white and blue. Uh, she, the, she had a color scheme and she was sticking to it. It was pristine. It was perfection. And she had her grandchildren walking across the living room with a book on their heads. She might sound like 
you know, a mad genius. Maybe she was. She's also quite possibly the sweetest, kindest, most loving person that I have ever known in my entire life. And I aspire every day to be more like her. But the fact is that she had me walk across her living room with a book on my head. I guess she read, I guess she read Betty Crocker's new picture cookbook. And she, <laughs> she made herself more interesting and she was always pleasant and did everything in love. I don't know. Maybe there's something to be taken from this. All right. So be comfortable. Have good posture. Have sink, work table, countertops at height that is comfortable to eliminate strain. If dish pan is too low, set it on a box. Use a dust mop and long-handled dust pan. Use self-ringing mop to prevent stooping. They're being really ergonomic about this. And that is, those are the hints for the homemaker. Y'all, we're on page five of this book. Um, I've barely gotten started. I've talked way too much. There is a whole section on kitchen know-how with, you know, ideas of how much eggs are there in a quarter of a cup. Apparently it's one. Um, a dictionary of food terms, which includes things like angelica, which is the candied leaf stalk of a European herb used in decorating cakes, candies, desserts, etc. I have no idea what angelica is. I don't think I've ever heard of it. This is not something that we use anymore. Coddle, to simmer gently in liquid for a short time. I've cooked a lot. I've, I've never, I've never coddled anything. I've certainly never heard. Consomme is a clear broth made of veal and or chicken. I know that one. There is a section of ingredient terms used in this book. Coffee, obviously. Flour, gelatin. Ge gelatin is probably one of the most horrifying ingredients known to man. Gelatin is made out of, like, the bones of pigs. I'm pretty sure. <gasps> Canned mushrooms are included in the ingredients terms used in this book. So, yes, this book comes from a moment when you know women or at least certainly the women this book is addressing were homemakers their job apparently was to create a cheerful pleasant household and use this book to make meals for their families um I just turned to page 14. There is a section called Substitutions for Emergencies. Um, it's best to use ingredients. The recipe recommends. But if you have to substitute, this list solution lends. It's a fucking poem about not having the right ingredients for a recipe. That is just absolutely mind-blowing. And there's an illustration of a horrified woman peering out through a curtain at a bunch of guests 
guests who are apparently coming over for dinner. And God, what is she going to do? She's not ready for this. Apparently, she is is out of cornstarch and she's going to have to use flour instead because otherwise how the hell is she going to thicken her her gravy i don't know you could substitute an egg with two egg yolks and a tablespoon of water why if you have a recipe that's calling for an egg why do you have two egg yolks like, that doesn't make sense as a substitution, does it? You could use for a cup of fresh whole milk. This is the most useless list of substitutions I've ever seen in my life. If you don't have a cup of fresh whole milk, you can use one cup of sour milk or buttermilk plus a half a teaspoon of soda. Why would you have buttermilk on hand but not milk? This is nonsense. And obviously, you can use sugar in substitute of a cup of honey. I'm just sort of baffled. I guess, I mean, here's the thing, is the kind of cook that I've grown into, I I tend to sort of cook things on the fly. I make a lot of substitutions in my cooking. Sometimes I don't even have a recipe. I just sort of look at the ingredients that I have and I chuck some stuff together based off of a particular, you know, uh, uh, theme, like I'll, I'll make something that leans Greek uh, because I have Kalamata olives and lemon, something, you know, sort of that, that, that kind of thing. And um, this book is assuming that you just really, you don't know what you're doing if, if you find that you don't have exactly, exactly what you need. Um, because, yes, these are the most nonsense. Maybe, maybe, here's my theory. Maybe they just included these substitutions for emergencies because they wanted to put the poem in the book. That's my suspicion. I think that might be right. Yes. Uh, there is a section on how to store foods. Um, I need to listen to this whole section on brown sugar. I have two bags of brown sugar in my cabinet right now that are solid blocks because I don't store it properly. I really don't. I just scoop a couple, you know, cups out of the bag and I chuck it back on the shelf and the next thing you know I have a solid block of sugar so yeah it says to prevent that you should keep it in an airtight container I'm aware of that I don't do it because you can soften brown sugar oh this is strange this is strange advice for softening brown sugar place any of the following in container a slice of apple or orange on waxed paper. Change fruit often to ensure freshness. A crisp lettuce leaf, a damp cloth, a slice of fresh bread, or a piece of moistened sponge. Replace in two or three days. Cover tightly again. So the idea here is that to add moisture to your hardened brown sugar, you put a, a slice of apple in there. And then you babysit 
sit the fuck out of that shit and change it out. Like, I wouldn't be every two or three days. You'd want to do that like every 24 hours, I would think. Um, Who has time for that answer? Nobody. That said, my grandma Flo, my other grandmother, she used to keep her cookies in a plastic bag with a piece of bread to keep the cookies moist. So, you know, it's not all complete nonsense. It's just maybe not super practical. The assumption that you have just epic quantities of time to keep track of these things is absolutely just, it flabbergasts me. I, I really... It's it's very difficult to translate. It's difficult to read something like this. I can read this and sort of laugh at it, you know. The idea of living a life in which this book has a legitimate place really genuinely boggles my mind. I get up every day and I... At least, at least until very recently, I got my kids dressed, I drove them to their dad's house, I dropped them off, I go to work, I spend all day working with very smart people, I pick my kids back up, we talk on the way home, I throw together whatever dinner I think I can get them to eat. And, you know, I live this life that is just very much centered around sort of my independence from absolutely everything that this book represents. I don't have to cook to when when my kids aren't here in the evenings. I cook to please me. And then if I am cooking to please someone else, it's because it's someone that I'm fond of and it's someone who I know enjoys food. And I sort of want to share that with them. The ideas that this book, and I would hope that, you know, they would want to cook with me or for me too. The the sort of world that this book is built around I am legitimately allergic to, um, and yeah, it's sort of difficult to comprehend how I would have lived in a world like this. Like, what would I have been like? Um, because again, it's, it's sort of really challenging to see. So yes, here I am with this cookbook that is beautiful. I mean, it's really legitimately beautiful. It's very thorough and it represents this sort of cheerful, dystopian perfection. Um, that I'm I'm certainly glad we never achieved because I am you know I, I wonder how many women just felt like they did not measure up 
because of what was represented in books like this, these sort of concepts of what is a good homemaker? Like, and what is your job in the household? And what kinds of foods should you be making? And how should you be making them? And yes, as I, I am here and I go out into the world and I sort of do my own thing. The idea that my grandmothers were sort of either fighting this kind of culture or they were deeply embedded in this culture it really truly makes me wonder like how it would have been possible to rebel against all of this and how easy it would have been to sort of constantly berate oneself if say you weren't great at cooking and you like didn't quite measure up to everything that is here then you know what what how are you going to view yourself as a woman and it also sort of it becomes pretty there are definitely things in here that we haven't gotten rid of rid of you guys there are things in here that we definitely still have conceptually um this idea of sort of making the best of things this idea of being constantly making your lists and thinking about how to organize your home and you know there's nothing wrong with all of that but i think that these are definitely still weights that primarily women carry and that primarily we are sort of dealing with uh, either within our families or even when we're independent, when we're on our own. Um, I, I think that there's still a certain cheerfulness required of women. I've definitely experienced in my life that if I demonstrate unhappiness or anger, um, you know, those sort of like unpleasant, non-homemakery emotions, that the reaction is is definitely not positive um so yeah my thoughts my thoughts on this book as i go through it are that it is beautiful it is thorough it is clearly lovingly laid out this book is a love letter to the homemaker and she has not completely disappeared from our society. And some of those things are good. I think the idea of sharing food with your family, sharing love with your family is fantastic. But there's, at least so far, there's no joy in this, you know, and there's definitely nothing left for the homemaker the the idea that you should i don't know most cookbooks these days have a note on something like this is spirit of cooking you know choose the recipes that you want to make start with the things that really call to you the cook you know what i mean i think that 
a lot of cookbooks now are very like cook focused. This is very much focused on the family, focused on the home, focused on what can you do to be of service rather than what can you do to find joy in this process. And that is, that's who I am as a cook. It's not just, yes, it is in huge part joy of sharing food with the people that I love. But there's also a very specific joy that I actually take from the act of cooking. Like, I I like to do it independent of the result. And the idea that this book is, like, completely ignoring or removing that, that it has turned into this, how do you utilize this act of cooking to make this perfect world for your family? is is you know I, I think it's quite uh sad and it makes me really grateful that I live in this present moment of foodies and you know this acceptability of cooking and boy I'm glad that I got over a lot of my hang-ups about the hang-ups that I would deeply associate with the culture represented by this book, by the way, those hang-ups I had surrounding sort of the anti-feminism of making a meal, or at least that's how I perceived it when I was young. Um, it took me a very long time to work through that and to really learn to enjoy and love cooking without guilt, because for a long time, you know, I very much felt that it was sort of, I was sacrificing part of myself and I was sacrificing some of my ideals to put time and effort into food. And I read a book like this and I absolutely understand where that feeling that I had came from. And... I'm, I'm very interested to get deeper into this book and to see, you know, have a more thorough look at what some of the recipes are like and ultimately what they, what they sort of come to represent. Uh, if you're still listening, <laughs> I just want to say thank you very much. Um, I've never recorded a podcast before and I'm doing this sort of on a whim so if nobody ever listens to it, then, you know, that's that's perfectly fine. If you do, then welcome. Hi, thank you for listening. And uh, let's go on an adventure of recipes from the 1960s. And, uh, yeah, how, what they look, what they really look like in, uh, in the here and now. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a really lovely day and, uh, I appreciate your time. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I guess, leave me a note. All right. Thank you so much. Go out there, read, cook. I don't know. Do the thing that you love to do. Like whatever the fuck that is. I think that's probably the most important thing in life is just, you know, love 
the people you love and do the things that make you happy no matter what anybody else thinks about them and uh don't don't lose your love for them and if you you know you aren't enjoying it don't fucking do it <laughs> have good posture because it's good for you don't have good posture because a book from 1961 told you to all right thank you for listening this is uh this is my podcast about Betty Crocker's new picture cookbook. My name is Megan Morgan, and uh, I'll see you again soon. Thanks. Bye.